Welcome, listeners, to a new episode of The Case Podcast, another conversation about software engineering. My guest today is Mike Sperber. Mike, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Mike, let's start off by you introducing yourself. Who are you and what do you do for a living? Um, so, yeah, well, I'm Mike Sperber. I'm in heavily involved in functional programming and have been so for most of my professional life. So I started out as a researcher, and currently I'm CEO of a software consultancy in Tübingen, Germany, uh, where we do all kinds of project development and training using functional programming. Okay. So the topic of our, of our podcast today is going to be, does functional programming matter? And uh, this is actually the result of an interesting conversation we had. We've, we, we've known each other for a while, and we had a conversation over Twitter, I think, about whether or not the style of programming, functional, imperative, whatever matters if you look at it from a larger distance matters in in the greater scheme of things and um, you definitely do believe it does and i was sort of skeptical yes. <laughs> yeah <laughs> even though i'm a fan of yeah. functional programming so that's going to be the topic of our of our conversation um so um maybe we should start by defining what it is we're talking about so what is functional programming so I think the term originally, of course, I mean, it, it says function right there in the term. So originally the term was defined as programming with functions. And um, I think this term was coined in the 90s uh, to distinguish itself from object-oriented programming where it meant, and, and there functional programming meant you could have functions as objects. And most object-oriented languages have acquired functions as objects in, in one way or another. So it's no, no, younger, no longer much, uh, it's no longer of much use for um, distinguishing it. But I would say these days functional programming has two distinguishing characteristics. And one of them is that we program with immutable data. And so that, I guess, comes from the, uh, from the other definition of functions, that you have functions in mathematics, where really you just have things that transform input into output, and you don't have the side effects and the uh, manipulation of state that is typical of object-oriented programming. So that's one thing, pure functions and immutable data. And I think the other aspect more has to do with um, the actual practice of functional programming is in that we really believe in high-level models. So um, a good uh, functional programming language will let you achieve abstraction at a layer that is at a level that is maybe one or two layers higher than an object-oriented language. And we'll believe that that is tremendously useful in modeling. So we use uh, what's called higher-order abstractions that involve functions. Um, uh, and we also use... Um, techniques for mathematics and modeling, um, and which is very different, I think, from the culture and object-oriented language, which is more rooted in sort of looking at real things, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Okay. So yeah. let's, let's maybe elaborate on that, on that a bit. What, what kind of languages are we talking about here? What are good examples of functional programming languages that you refer to? Here? Uh, so good, uh, good examples are um, Haskell, for example. Um, um, F-sharp is a popular language on the .NET framework, on the Java uh, um, platform, you have Clojure and Scala, um, um, there's Racket, uh, there's Erlang, there's Elixir, these are all um, typical functional languages. Mm -hmm. OCaml, I should mention. So, for, for the purpose of our discussion, does it matter which of these languages uh, people use? Uh, I mean, they all let you do uh, things um, very differently from object-oriented languages, but they do differ um, significantly. So first of all, um, some of these languages are typed and some are untyped, and the typed functional languages uh, typically have very fancy type systems, if you will, that let you do a lot of the modeling using the types built into the programming language. And so usually the models that you build in typed languages differ from those in untyped languages where you make active use of the fact that they're untyped. So Erlang and Racket, for example, are typical, um, and Clojure are typical untyped languages, uh, whereas Haskell and F-sharp and OCaml are typed languages. Uh, so that's one thing that matters. Uh, really depends on uh, on your style of of, uh, of doing business. I'm not very uh, religious about uh, the whole static versus dynamic types um, discussion, and we aren't uh, as an organization. Um, the other distinguishing um, 
characteristic, I think, is the platform that it runs on. And for real-world projects that we do, we generally, uh, generally, a large part of the decision which which of these languages we pick uh, comes from the platform that uh, the customer runs on their site. So, for the Java platform, uh, we would pick between Clojure and Scala. On the .NET platform, F# -sharp is pretty much a given. And then um, the other platforms might be native code uh, platforms where efficiency might be an important factor or um, uh, or other aspects that have to do with platform operating system and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if the uh, if I if I look at this ecosystem, if I look at these at this number of languages that we're talking about here, right? There, I completely agree that they vary very very much. Um, mm -hmm. So is it is it a useful thing to talk about how how modeling changes if you use a language like um, like uh, or if you use a functional language versus an object oriented language or should it be more about whether you use a language that has a static type system versus one that ha that doesn't uh, or is I think it a mixture distinctions in both places so there's i think generally what when we do model modeling in functional languages there's more commonalities than differences um, and the difference to sort of typical object oriented modeling is greater um, having said that the difference within sort of between static and, and dynamically typed systems is still significant enough to be worth talking about. Okay. Uh, but definitely we always do things in a different way from what we would do in object-oriented um, settings. Okay. So I think we're going to get into more detail about that. But it's, yeah. it's, I, find it, I find it very refreshing that you're unreligious about this whole thing. So it's not going to be mm -hmm. like, a, like um, you know, a Haskell uh, um, zealot kind of talk um, not that I know yeah. any Haskell seeds of course but you know like yeah. the uh, not that they even exist of course but the, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but the discussion let's let's keep it very let's keep it very down to earth and that's actually what what intrigued me in the first the first place right um, so um, I've been applying and my colleagues my, my organization has been applying uh, functional programming as well but it's I think most of the time um, well these that I know of I may not know some of the things that some of my my colleagues or co-workers are doing but most of the things that I'm aware of um, the choice of programming language is more of an implementation detail. It's not, un, it's not unimportant, definitely not, but it's not the most important decision. The most important decisions are other kinds of decisions like how do you separate the system into larger subsystems or where does it run or how does it manage its persistent data or how does it communicate with the outside world, all those things. But what you, what you uh, very strongly seem to suggest is that it matters a lot in terms of actually um, building a representation of the user's or the domain expert's model. Can yes. you elaborate a bit on that? Well, how does that change? So I think, I mean, uh, the most visible change just comes with immutability, right? When you're doing object-oriented programming, you tend to see everything as, as uh, you know, objects that have encapsulated state and independent objects in particular that send each other messages. And so that's a very particular out outlook on the world around us. Um, and that's very different from um, functional programming where we think more in terms of our perception of the entire landscape of what goes on around us. And so, um, so we tend to think in terms of consistent snapshots um, of our entire system rather than sort of individual objects um, that, uh, that have changing state, that, stay, uh, that changes independently. So that's, I think that's one change that has a lot of consequences and it, I fi find it hard to overstate those. Um, uh, those, have, uh, those have many architectural um, consequences on things like uh, testing, on things like coupling. So, for example, if you have state in object-oriented systems, they typically tend to imply uh, a lot of coupling between objects that you don't really see in the signatures of your methods and your UML diagrams and, and what have you. So that's a very practical and down-to-earth um, consequence. I think as far as modeling, as, as far as really um, domain modeling is concerned, um, I mean, for some reason, we really tend to try to write things down in code that, at least in their sort of structure and layout, correspond to what a customer would tell us, you know, the structure of their domain objects is like. And I rarely see that in object-oriented systems who tend more and who tend to somehow always have sort of these evolving objects that change. Um, even though I think, you know, the way we do, I mean, this, this idea that you would have a domain model reflected in your software that is recognizably, you know, that reflects the thinking of your customer or the domain expert is really an object-oriented idea. So in that sense, I think, uh, you know, functional modeling is really just, um, 
you know, it's just a hardcore implementation of uh, of this idea that we've always had in object-oriented modeling. So if that makes any sense. Well, so let me start with the with the first with the first half of yeah. that argument, the immutability thing. So yeah. I think that the common wisdom, at least in the object-oriented languages that I'm familiar with. And I'm not a huge mm -hmm. fan, by the way. I'm not a huge. Mm -hmm. I'm not like an object-oriented zealot. I actually like functional programming, but even even within the object-oriented space, I think immutability is now considered to be a very good thing. So if you can make something immutable, you should make it immutable. Yes. If something is a value, then it's a value, and the value doesn't change. It's something that refers to that value that might refer to a different value at another point in time, and then that gives you that value object pattern that's very very dominant, mm -hmm. very, very yeah. visible in the domain-driven design community, for example. But it has also been for a number of years, maybe a decade or more now in, in many in many projects. So does that change so it's anything? Much, it's much, it's, that's much older than that, though, actually. So if you look at sort of the design history of object-oriented object, of object -oriented, uh, programming per se, um, I mean, there's a, there's a paper by Alan Kay on the history of object... Who, who, Alan Kay was the inventor of Smalltalk, or one of the inventors of Smalltalk, and coined the term object-oriented programming. And if you look at uh, a paper he wrote on the history, he said, you know, uh, our goal with object-oriented programming was first to make a more flexible version of assignment, you know, his word for things with state, and then eliminate it altogether. So we really, you know, we're really talking about the natural continuation of the original ideas of object-oriented programming. Mm -hmm. Okay. So and that and that was that is much older than just the last ten or twenty years. That's more like forty years old. That idea. Oh yeah, I, I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure that's true. I'm just yeah. all, all I want yeah. to say is that in the in the yeah. uh, specifically in the Java space, which I'm most familiar yeah. with in terms of yeah, so language, somehow that dream got lost. Right? We got Java. Right? I'm not. And, yeah. Okay. So I love Java bashing as much as the next person, but yeah. I still think that <laughs> you know even in C plus plus or in Java, you can program in in, in very different styles. Yeah. And uh, the, the sort of the, the mainstream style has changed within yes. within the last yeah. years, yeah. and I think it's changed towards becoming um, more uh, focused on, on immutability wherever possible, um, because because people in the in the object oriented community uh, definitely con consider know or understand the value of immutability. I think so they make everything immutable that they think that they consider it to be a good idea idea for. So. Yeah. Um, there is some movement in that direction. I think probably everybody can agree on that. Now, the hard, maybe the hard mm -hmm. part is um, how do you deal with the cases where you wouldn't make something immutable in an object-oriented language, even if you could? I mean, you could, right? You can you, in Java, you can make something have just you know a, just have a constructor, no setters, just you know it yeah. gets its value sure. once it's constructed. That's yeah. it. But you can't do that with everything because there are some things that, or well, of course you can, but you wouldn't if you're building a. So, sort of so where, where do you program. think you wouldn't, right? So, so mm -hmm. where, where do you think you wouldn't? Well, let's let's take let's take. Um, and I think we're going to talk more about this. Let's take domain-driven mm -hmm. design and the terminology right. from there mm -hmm. as, as an example, right? So, in domain-driven design, a value object would follow the immutability pattern, mm -hmm. right? But an entity or an aggregate wouldn't. Right. So it would it would allow you to uh, to reflect. Um, with meaningful with meaningful methods, not just simple setters, not like you know having having data holders or, or anemic data models. It would allow you to do meaningful things um, to that object that might or might not change its internal state, mm -hmm. which sort of mm -hmm. is none of your business if you just invoke that method. What's wrong about that? I think what's wrong about that is is really that idea that I described earlier is that you have entities that are independent of one another, right? In domain-driven design, which I have to admit I don't understand that well, you try to have transaction boundaries in your system that manage, you know, dependent mutations in your objects, but it's always a headache, right? You have this entity, it has it has state, you call a method on it, that state changes, um, and in a concurrent world, which we're in, uh, you know, people are going to look at that object and will hopefully see a consistent, uh, a consistent state, but you really have to take special care um, to make that happen. And generally, if you you know if you look at mutable objects, there's all sorts of um, consistency issues that you deal with. And so, in functional programming, I mean, as you pointed out, in object-oriented programming, it's long been considered a good idea to keep many things immutable. Uh, functional programmers are just much, much more radical about that entire idea. So, in order to represent what DDD considers an entity, 
I mean, if, especially if you're dealing with pure languages or largely pure languages like Clojure or Haskell, you don't even have an option of putting a setter in there or putting a method in there that will mutate your object. So, and, uh, so really, we tend to think of this as, well, you know, we're, we're modeling our perception of some real world or domain entity. The state of that entity changes, and that means we create a new representation rather than changing the old one. Mm -hmm. okay. um, yeah. So, so anything, anything that you want to do, any, any sort of business logic that you mm -hmm. write that does something meaningful will always yeah. return a new object yes. or a new data yeah. hold yeah. record, whatever it's called, a new object yeah. as, the, as the result of that function, right? So everything becomes... A, okay, so I can see the benefit in that. I can see that, um, that you get rid of the, of the, of the mutability, Problems, although the problems connected to mutability, um, and maybe you should explain why that does not create a, a severe headache in terms of copying stuff all the time. Why is that not yeah. a severe performance yeah, headache? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, so very often when we have a data structure, even an object-oriented programming, that's internally represented by pointers, right? We don't, uh, you know, when we have whatever a person object and it contains an a an address object. Uh, or a field of the type address, and the address itself has like street, street number, and so on. Um, that typically does not mean that there's going to be a copy of the entire data structure inside the person object. Instead, instead there will be a pointer. And um, I mean, we're not going to talk about it. right now. I'm not talking about specific programming techniques in C++ where you maybe would would copy that. So first of all. Uh, so that means that, you know, if I create a, a new object uh, from an old one to represent a new state, I typically only have to do, uh, well, on the implementation side, you would call it a shallow copy. So I don't have to copy all the dependent data structures. And I really don't have to copy them because they're all immutable, right? I don't have to be afraid that somebody's going to change the address of something underneath. Uh, so really it's safe to use it in that way. So that means there is not all that much copying involved as you think. Also, uh, modern functional languages have highly efficient what's called functional data structures. So their implementations of things like lists or maps or sets are, um, uh, are functional in a way that if you just create a map from a new one by changing one entry, it will share most of the storage between the old and the new version, and it will do so quite efficiently. Moreover, um, for quite a while now, uh, especially thanks to Java, uh, people have implemented highly efficient uh, memory subsystems. And the garbage collector, for example, in Java deals with many new objects um, being created quickly quite well. So, um, so this overhead from functional data structure, I mean, there is some overhead definitely, uh, but that overhead tends to be smaller than we think, even than we think, uh, and we have a lot of experience doing that. Mm -hmm. So we don't, we don't see that that's being a factor. Okay, so I've seen this data structures. You call them functional data structures, right? I know them as yeah. persistent data structures. Do you have any idea what that well, term? Well, depends on sort of what era. Uh, so the old sort the of algorithms thing, right? community calls them persistent data structure, but then people mm -hmm. think of databases. Yeah. Um, and um, so the seminal work is just a book by Chris Okasaki, and it's called Functional Data Structure, and that you know lays out the uh, that lays out the land on this, and so mm -hmm. that's the term that we tend to use. Okay. So let me try to play devil's advocate here again. Why, why, please, why all of this please. doesn't really matter that much. I mean, yeah. okay, so immutability is very cool. And uh, essentially, you just have to get used to the idea if I were a long-term, long-time object-oriented programmer, um, I would just have to get used to the idea that my, my uh, functions maybe now don't belong to a class that creates instances of that object, depending on the language I use. So maybe mm -hmm. put them somewhere else. Yeah. And um, everything becomes a parameter Okay, and I uh, return whatever uh, I want as the re as the return value. I create something new as the return value, as opposed to mutating something existent. Now, in that regard, that seems just to to shift uh, things a bit around. So it's like a little it's a different place, and of course, it cre has a lot of effect because of the immutability aspect, yes. right? Because I get yep. a lot of, yep. lot fewer headaches in terms of concurrent access to stuff or weird things happening while iterating over something and then all of those things just continue to work. And that's, that's pretty cool. So how, does, how, does the, um, how do the other aspects of uh, object-oriented programming get, well, replaced or what replaces them? Let's say, for example, I use polymorphism to to uh, create uh, a flexible representation of the outside world in my object-oriented program. How do, what, do I do, what do I replace that with if I use a functional programming language? 
I don't think you replace it with anything. You evolve it, right? And you get, uh, it just happens that you get different ideas. Um, so, um, I mean, to give, maybe to give one classic example from functional programming, uh, which is on the representation of financial contracts, right? And so, I, in a former life, I actually worked in finance um, on these things. And so, you have a complicated financial product, and essentially what it will do is will generate payments over its lifetime according to complicated rules. And sort of in the old world, in the object-oriented world, you would represent this contract as an object, and that object would sort of mutate its state over time to track what payments have already been done or what date it is or something like that. And you would, you know, you would call a method on it um, uh, to evolve it um, over time. Mm -hmm. Also, and so we would... And, and so the actual semantics of the contract would be described by the implementation of a method that would mutate the internal state of a contract, right? So, so you would have an algorithm, if you will, implement it as, as part of the method. And you would have some state of the contract um, sitting in the class that represented the contracts. And, you know, that's all good and well. Um, and in the, in the late 90s, a couple of functional programmers got together uh, with, with a trader or the other way around and thought about um, a different way of uh, representing contracts. And so, first of all, they didn't, have this, this, they didn't even have this idea of using an object with mutable state to uh, represent the contract lifetime. Um, what they thought about was, well, I mean, what is a contract, right? And can we describe it in a high-level way that will, um, you know, that will make the structure and the semantics of the contract clear, that will create reusable components? And so they didn't think about, you know, what happens to the state of that contract as the defining characteristic of the contract. They thought of, what is that contract? It seems a little silly. But um, so what they did is they, um, they developed a little library of building blocks for contracts. And there's only, um, there's a couple of primitive components, like there's a fixed payment of, you know, one euro or something like that. And building up from that, you have combinators. And so that's a defining characteristic of functional models where you build larger contracts from smaller contracts. So you start with a tiny contract that says one euro, and then you have a combinator that says, well, any contract I have, I can scale it by a certain factor. And so I could scale something by 10, and suddenly I have 10 euros. I could combine it with another contract of, you know, whatever, 10 pounds and reverse the direction of that. And so I get a toolbox of small building blocks and combinators that allow me to build smaller contracts from larger contracts. And... Um, and that is a very powerful idea. It could be an object-oriented idea, but I've never seen sort of the object-oriented community within the banks that I worked for come up with that. Now, um, so, so that sort of gives you sort of a static view of the semantics uh, of the structure and also the semantics of a contract. And that leaves open the question, well, how do you deal with the evolving state, right? You still have state that you model. And um, so... Um, when you, when you deal with that state, well, we had that idea. You have an object. It has some opaque, internal, encapsulated state. And with this idea of contracts, uh, they came up with a completely different idea that over the lifetime of a contract, well, something happens. The contract generates a payment, and it leaves a residual contract. And it leaves a residual contract um, as things happen. And so the contract sort of over time gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it expires when it sort of goes down to zero. And so that, that's given us a very different view of how these things um, should be modeled. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think maybe the analogy or the way I've seen it done a number of times, the first, the first half of your explanation is actually that people um, sort of create an object-oriented representation of a model that represents the contract language. Right, so it seems it seems to be just it seems to be that it's just one added level of in, of indirection here, because if I understood you correctly, what you would do in your in your version is you would you would um, you would essentially write down the contract in a in a pretty human readable form because you would have those building blocks yes. and the main yeah, expert would exactly. be able to see that that's sort of the point mm -hmm. of the whole thing, right? Yes, exactly. And right. um, in an object-oriented language, what I think you would see is um, you would see an object-oriented structure being created that represents sort of the same thing. So um, you'd have some add clause or add rule or, you know, like it'll all be object-oriented programming, but it'd be used not yeah. to, it would be used to rep to create something that would then be interpreted to do the same thing. So it's, 
it's at a different layer, but it's sort of the same idea of getting something yeah, into the yeah, hands so of the domain. Be, yeah, so as I said, right, it's, it's essentially an object-oriented idea, but this is not what I've seen in practice, right? In practice, people were all obsessed about the state of the contract rather than the contract itself, right? So, um, um, and this is a phenomenon that I've seen over and over again is, is for some reason, right, um, a lot of sort of the semantics of the domain would in object-oriented systems would not really be in the objects in their structure, right? But the semantics would be in some methods that contain code that would manipulate the state. And, you know, the code sort of by definition is, is this opaque thing. You can't look into it. You can't analyze it. You can't generalize it to other aspects. So in a bank, for example, you want to interpret a contract uh, in many different ways, uh, depending on sort of what department of the bank looks at the contract, right? And if you just have a piece of code describe the semantics of the contract, then um, there's just no way to introspect um, and to look inside it. So and is that so, something that you do often? Is, is, the, is the fact that the... Um, I, first of all, I don't know how true that is in, in, other, in, in languages other than, for example, the Lisps, right? The Lisp family, I, I, I know a little bit. So I think they're, mm -hmm. the, the, the distinguishing characteristic here is that code is data and that you can actually manipulated using the same the same kind of actions that you would use to manipulate any other kind of data is there true for all the languages or does it even matter or are you referring to something else no 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 i'm just i'm just i mean i was referring to the object oriented way right you would have i mean as you know a, a contract would you know would produce a payment and the way that would work is you would call a method that said you know give me whatever happened today and it would return the payment and it would advance the state of the object right But in order to, um, so, so that would, for example, be sort of a back office interpretation of a contract. The, the, that is the interpretation that the customer sees, right? It, it generates payments. But other departments, so for, ex for example, risk control is going to want to know how that contract sort of behaves on average or if certain market scenarios happen. And for this, it would be very beneficial if we could look at the internal structure of the method that implements the semantics, but we can't. Um, And um, so the, the functional model that I just described is the entire structure of the contract and its semantics is described by the structure of an object that I can look at, right? So I'm, I'm saying, you find my, you hear me say object, right? It really is an object-oriented idea. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I could, I could build the same kind of object. I could build that in an object-oriented language and it would, everybody would look at that and would say, well, this is a really good object-oriented model. Um, but I, I just rarely see that happen in practice and i see it happen much more frequently in the context of functional programming okay. so i think what happens is the functional languages sort of enable you to do that more easily um and that sort of you know leaves you know that gives you a little bit more brain more freak brain capacity to, to, to think these things um and it also gives you sort of more uh, more succinct and more direct abstractions to think in terms of um, that you can use, or okay. if you will, the meta building blocks to build the building blocks that you then use to do your domain model, and that's um, uh, and so that gets us, I think, to the to the subject of your of abstraction um, okay. at some point. So, so what what and, I think you're what you think you're you're saying, and just using different words that <laughs> I would probably use it, yeah. that it that a functional program programming language lends itself very nicely to building something like an internal DSL. An internal yes, domain yes. specific language is a very time. natural we do that all thing. The time. You can, of course, do the same thing in, a, in an object-oriented language, yeah. but yeah. it's it's uh, it's less idiomatic and it's a little harder. And I would completely yeah. agree with that. And I agree that yeah. a program that use that heavily relies on this idea of an internal DSL really looks mm -hmm. and feels and behaves different than one that doesn't. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. We have agreement. Very good. So elaborate a bit. Before we go to the other part, elaborate a bit on the on the state thing. I'm not sure I understood that. What mm -hmm. you were saying was that um, each um, action or function that you apply to the contract would give you a residual contract. What do you mean yes. by that? Yeah, yeah. What is what is that? How do I how do I have to think about that? So um, it's kind of hard to explain in audio. I'll try. Mm -hmm. So imagine you have a contract that says, "I will pay you, you know, one euro each week." right? For the next eight weeks. Mm -hmm. Okay. So at some point, so, uh, you know, somebody, imagine somebody at the bank manages that contract, right? And they look at it today and they say, oh, it's payday. I've got to pay Stefan, you know, I've got to give Stefan his due today. And, um, and that means, so I generate a payment, 
right? At the same time, there's a residual, there's what I call the residual contract, which says that there's only seven payments left, mm -hmm. right? And so that's a new contract. I could just treat that as a new contract that sort of comes out of the old one um, by removing that first that first payment. So as the payment as the contract contract's lifetime progresses and and you know time passes, you know we get first a contract that has we started with a contract that has eight payments, then we get a pay contract that has seven payments that has seven payments six and so on and it goes on to zero at the end. But each stage here. We just represent it as a new contract, whereas the object-oriented systems that I've seen would typically just say, would just have a state variable that said what day it is, and each time you asked it, uh, you know, what's going on, what's going to happen today, they would look and say, oh, you know, they would look at the same eight payments, because these were in the, in the original contract, they would look at these same eight payments and say, well, this payment is over, this payment is over, this payment is over, and this payment is over, ah, and the next one is that one. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So, and so, so how how would a system build? Oh, okay. So I, I understand this this concept. Mm -hmm. So um, how would you um, persist this to some sort of external data storage, like a like a database? Wouldn't you have to create something in the database that looks eerily similar to the state in the in the in the object oriented program object? Well, it is state, right? We just deal with it differently. Um, so, um, so, but this is really easy to put into a database because you just find a serialized representation and um, so, and stick in a field. Maybe that's a, and 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 so that's I guess another major difference. Um, I'm not sure how much that has to do with object-oriented programming, but when we put things in the database that have that kind of structure. Um, we don't try to reflect that structure in the structure of the database schema. That would be pretty much impossible because to, um, as I said, you have uh, what we call a combinator. So you build a contract from two smaller contracts, for example. So there's a kind of recursion in the data definition for that. And your typical you know, SQL schema description language just, just doesn't has that, have that facility. Mm -hmm. So we just serialize it and stick it into a database field and databases are perfectly fine dealing with that. Okay, that's a, that's a very significant difference too. Yeah. To the approaches I yeah. I, I yeah. know. And then, okay. So. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Okay. So I, I agree. This has got nothing to do with object oriented versus yeah. versus yeah. functional. Yeah. to do with enterprise database. Maybe. You know, yeah. And it's a bit like uh, like what is what is the common way of doing things, right? So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sure you will find object oriented enthusiasts who will strongly agree that uh, you know all this whole object relational mapping thing has been and always was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, but still, it's sort of a mainstream way. So many people, not all of them, but many people building object-oriented programs, specifically enterprise programs, um, actually use that pattern and sort yes. of have a, have, yeah. a, have, a, have a strong relation between the relational data model or whatever database model it mm -hmm. is and the objects yeah. represented there. Um, so what you're saying is that, in, in the, at least in the functional world you're inhabiting, that is a very different there's a very different approach to that. And that, yeah. that I would completely agree, going back to our initial uh, discussion, that is a very significant architectural difference. So yes. if, that is, yeah. if that is the consequence, then things are different. I'm not saying they're, they're, they're better in your version of things, because I see lots of problems with serializing programming language state to databases. Um, but that's a different discussion, I think. That's more mm -hmm. of an architecture sure. discussion yeah. than a programming language discussion. Okay, mm -hmm. very good. Um, so... Let's get back to a word you used, and you used it as if any as if everybody knew what that is, which was the word combinator. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So, can you elaborate a bit on because that seems to me something that you're very um, that you think is very very significant and makes a lot of difference in the way we program, yes. not just in that yeah. example, but in many examples. Yes, yeah, we look for that always. Mm -hmm. So, what's a combinator? Yeah. So, what's a combinator? So, combinator just isn't. Uh, it's just. Uh, if you so, it's a function that takes two a's and produces an a, where a is some domain object or entity or value or something like that. So, so that's sort of the purest form: is you combine two things into a larger thing, and the significant thing is that really the same kind of thing comes out as goes in, mm -hmm. right? And um, here's a significant difference in practice. So, if you have you know any enterprisey you know database based system that you look at, it's typically going to have 
a hierarchy of, of domain entities, right? So there's going to be, you know, whatever, you have an insurance company and it has some, some building block for a contract and then it has a contract and then it has a portfolio and uh, I don't know, mm -hmm. something. So you have a hierarchy of terms and usually what happens is that when you want to combine things from a lower uh, part of the hierarchy, um, you will end up in a higher part of the hierarchy. And this never loops back. And this... Uh, so you can't, you know, if whatever, a portfolio is at, as, as at the top of your hierarchy, uh, you will have, there will typically not be a way to combine two portfolios into a portfolio or into something larger. So that, so this sort of uh, hierarchy or this pyramid will, will have a tip at some point. Mm -hmm. And so that, in our experience, creates, well, first of all, it creates a proliferation of sort of domain language where you have a lot of words and that don't really describe fundamentally different things. Um, and also it creates a very rigid structure. And the day always comes when a customer wants to combine two things that can't be combined within sort of that, this hierarchical taxonomy. And so um, this general thing that we try to look at in functional programming, we try to reduce the number of different domain entities that are in our, our system. And then we always look for combinators to combine two of those things into yet another thing. And then I can combine that thing with another thing, and I can do that indefinitely. And so that leads to um, structurally simpler models, first of all, and it also leads to much more, uh, uh, to much more, much more flexible models because typically... Um, Uh, well, it, this restriction doesn't exist. And usually what, what also happens is that, uh, you know, when the, the domain model will strongly suggest combinations that don't yet exist in the customer's idea of the domain, but that could. Just the language of, you know, uh, enterprise database schema thinking uh, just hasn't been able to express it. Mm -hmm. So can you walk me through an example of where this hierarchy occurs and so that we can contrast the two approaches? Yeah, so my, my favorite example occurs in, um, so, so we do a lot of business um, writing systems in, for semiconductor um, fabs, for systems that control semiconductor fabrication. And so making a semiconductor means that you go through a lot of steps. So a microprocessor goes through about a thousand production steps. And uh, what you can have is within those 1,000 production steps, you might have a subsequence that If you start it, it has to finish within a certain amount of time. Otherwise, some chemical process will destroy your wafer. And um, so, so the way to think about it is that the way that sort of traditional systems in that space work is they say, well, so you know, one of these what so this sequence of steps is called a route, and a route consists of steps and then these so-called queue time zones that describe that subsequence that needs to finish in a certain amount of time. So there's a couple of steps, a queue time zone, a couple more steps, another queue time zone, a couple more steps, and another queue time zone. And um, so now you have two entities, sort of, you have th that are hierarchically um, arranged. So a route consists of queue time zones, but a queue time zone can't consist of routes. Mm -hmm. And so, to us, when we started writing a functional model for this, it, it, it strongly suggested to us that we should be able, so when we think of, well, what does a queue time zone consist of? And in the traditional model, it said, well, queue time zone consists, again, of production steps, but really thought, well, it, there's, a, there's this funny thing is that we can have production steps in a route in a queue time zone, so that really suggests that those two things should be the same. So that a queue time zone should not just consist of individual production steps, but really that a production step should either be an individual operation, you know, put something into a machine, take it out, uh, you know, apply some chemical process to it, but should also be able to be a queue time zone. So if that didn't mean anything to you, that model immediately suggests that we should have queue time zones nested inside of queue time zones, or from a combinator perspective, that we should be able to combine multiple queue time zones into one. And um, so that's an idea that sort of came out of you know, the programming language representation of, uh, of these semiconductor fabrication routes, but that weren't present in traditional models that customers had of that route. And so we went back to the customer and said, well, you know, there's, our model suggests that really queue time zones, they should be able to nest. Then we could have a combinator and we would be able to build much more elegant software. But does that make sense in your domain? And they said, yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, it does make sense that, you know, if, that you might have subsequences that have their individual constraints on time. Um, and so that's, that's my favorite example where we would sort of gain new domain knowledge um, almost 
um, just because we expanded um, you know, what we could represent in our software model um, from what previous models were able to do. Okay, so I think there are two ideas in there. And mm -hmm. I think one of, oh, maybe wrong, okay. one of them might mm -hmm. be achievable um, if you weren't using functional programming. So let's say as a, if I, if I analyze the domain, I, I recognize this same relationship that you recognize, mm -hmm. that there is a, this, yeah. this structure. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I simply decide to arrange my domain entities in sort of a composite pattern that allows, mm -hmm. you know, I have, a, I have a super abstraction of some kind that's the generic step or whatever. Mm -hmm. And generic steps can nest, and then obviously these others can nest as well. So I might yeah. discover, I might discover the same relationship. And if I went with this model to the domain experts, they might agree in the same way, and I would have mm -hmm. have helped them to mm -hmm. get a better yeah. system. But I do think there's a second thing that you don't get as easily in the object -ori object oriented world, which which I'm just guessing here seems to be that the uh, that this combinator isn't really specific to this particular scenario. It's not. It's more like a It seems like the combinator approach is something that's, that that you seem to see and apply everywhere. It's like the yes. the essence yeah. of the composite pattern. Well, not the composite, yeah. but the, uh, the essence yeah. of this could be applied to everything, and it's only complete if it's this way, and because you see that there's something missing there. It's like a missing element in the periodic table yeah. or something. It suggests yeah. there yeah. needs to be something here, and then it's easier to find. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's that's, cool. yeah, that's a beautiful summary, and it, it goes beyond that in that, well, if you have a combinator and that combinator is a function, so that maybe gets us to the next to the next subject, is if you have that combinator, uh, we can then look for mathematical properties of that combinator, right? So, so what are some, some examples then, of that? What's so, uh, well, from school, I think we all, I mean, we might all remember associativity, right? If you have, and we, so, so we know that sort of plus and times And so addition and multiplication are associative operators. It doesn't mean, matter which way you put the parentheses. Mm -hmm. And so, so the next step after we found the combinator is always to look to look if we can't if the our combinator is associative, um, because that will give us well. It, it it means we can learn something again about the domain. It's, it's a particular way of thinking about the domain, and it also allows us to uh, use the combinators in more flexible ways. Uh, and sometimes that is just more domain insight, and sometimes that's very practical things. So, for example, uh, when you um, do a lot of aggregation in big data systems, and you do that in a distributed setting, then associativity is exactly what you need to do in order to mm -hmm. sort of distribute your computation in a tree shape. Mm -hmm. So, so what are so when you say those are functions? What are typical names for those functions? Would they be. Um, that are associative, or no? Just the the kind of combinators that you that you find. Would you so? Would you? What are what are names that you come up with, or is it a st is it always the same names that you use for those? No, it's not always the same name. So to give you, um, it really depends on the domain, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes the combinator is just going to be and right mm -hmm. where you have two things so in finance in the financial contracts for example there's one combinator that is and so you have two contracts with certain rights and obligations and and will just uh, mm -hmm. combine those and uh however in other settings uh so one uh, one classic setting is for example with images right and again in an object-oriented setting you tend to think of images well usually the way images are done is you have a canvas somewhere and that canvas is your object and it will have methods that will draw pictures uh, on that canvas that will mutate the state of that con canvas to make some shape visible and really again in functional programming we think of the uh, we think of the pictures as objects and we make pictures by combining smaller pictures Well, you would do the same and thing in an object-oriented system as well, I think. You would have an yeah, image object yeah, or a picture yeah, object well, and you would uh, merge you've pictures. from us. Um, oh, but, maybe, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, as, I mean, I think, we, you know, this really is just, uh, this really is, again, is just a continuation of that idea of uh, object orientation, that we have objects to represent the things that we recognize in our domain. So you can combine pictures in different ways. Um, so there's different combinators that we mm -hmm. can uh, yeah. that we can imagine. So we can put two pictures on top of each other. We can put uh, we can overlay two pictures, or we can put them we can put them beside each other. And then actually we will have different combinators, and they might be called something like beside and overlay and uh, you know uh, above uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. okay. So and that would reflect what goes on in the domain. 
Right. So in the, in that in that object object oriented version of the image library, I would I would have a super class, you know, ba the basic image interface mm -hmm. or class yeah. that sits atop, uh, on top of all or above all concrete implementations, and then that 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 interface would have signatures for all of the it would have yeah. all of the operations that I can use with images and your yes. functional model. Those would just, would just be free functions, right? That can be applied to yeah. things to the left and to the right of that combinator to yield something new. That would be the same thing. So again, it's possible to do the same thing in the object absolutely, OOP absolutely. system, but it's maybe more yeah. common in yours. Okay. And I understand, yeah. I can see how if you give them names that you already know the semantics of like, and, um, then it's kind of obvious that associativity is one of the properties that you should have if you it's, call yeah, it an. Yeah. So yeah. what about the other properties? So um, uh, you mean uh, uh, other than, so so we, so associativity is like always the first thing that we yeah. look for, right? It's we look for a combinator, we look for associativity, and then we sort of go up a hierarchy. So the next one up would be to look for, uh, for what's called a neutral element, right? And now, so we use... So functional programming lends itself to performing algebra, and so we look at algebraic structures for inspiration, and uh, so there's an algebraic structure called a monoid, um, and a monoid is just something where you have an associative operation that has a neutral element, a neutral element is, for example, when you do uh, addition, then that would be zero, right? You add zero to a number, you get back the same number. So, so it has... So is zero the monoid then, or...? I'm sorry? Is zero same. the monoid, or...? No, the zero is the neutral element of the monoid. Okay. So in algebra, usually what you say is, well, we have you have terms like monoid or semigroup or group or something like that. And what that usually refers to is you have a set of things or a type of things or a universe of things. And, um, and you have some operations on those things. And as I said, the first operation that you always look for is a combinator, something that will take two things and produce another thing. And then you will look for equations that uh, describe how that operation works. So, for example, simple equation is a plus zero is a mm -hmm. for, you know, any a, for example. And that's that really what makes up the monoid. It says, well, you have a set, you have a combinator, you have one particular element, and you have two equations that describes what a neutral element is. Mm -hmm. And another one for associativity, of course. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, and and let me if I if I if I can point out one more thing, it's it's that sometimes you will come up with a combinator that uh, is not associative, right? But that could be if you twiddle with it a little bit, um, and um, and that's usually a sign that you should actually change your combinator to be associative. And so that really is a powerful design guide, if you will. Mm -hmm. Okay, understood. Are there other relevant properties that will help you? Oh yeah, there, there are lots of them. So typically, the, so the next step up, I mean, there's the sort of whoever's been in an algebra class and in, in math might recognize that there's a hierarchy going on. So there's a semigroup which just has associativity. Then there's monoid. Uh, then you might also look at groups, but groups are already considerably rarer than uh, than monoids are, for example. But you might have a commutative monoid, which is also very very useful, where uh, you know it says a plus b is the same thing as b plus a. So um, that's how you go up in that hierarchy. The next level that we tend to look at is uh, so I have this this next rule after a look for the combinator is we look for a functor. And everybody's seen a functor, I think, in a modern object-oriented language, is in that you have a collection of A's, you know, a list of A's, it will have a map operation, mm -hmm. right? And, and these, of course, well, of course, they come from functional programming originally. Um, and the map operation says, well, I have a list of A's, and I have a function that turns my A into a B, and that will uh, apply that function to each element of that, of that list and give me a list of B's back. So it will sort of ap apply a function inside a container, inside something that contains A's. Um, and that's a very general idea. And if you look around, for example, in the Java class library, you will find this map operation in classes or in interfaces that ostensibly have nothing to do with each other. Um, but it's always the same idea. And um, so, for example, in Java, optional and stream both have a map method, and you recognize sort of very, um, very related signatures there. Um, and uh, so this idea also has a name, and that name is called functor. And, um, and so that's the next thing. Look for a combinator, and then, you know, once you've found the combinator, you look for a functor. 
So wait, 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 wait. Yeah, I need to ask. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I'm, I'm familiar with the map thing. I think basically yeah. everybody who's used yeah. a modern programming language yeah. is that. Yeah. They don't, yeah. don't even have to be functional programming enthusiasts because every mainstream or old language has those things as yeah. well. Yeah. But you yeah. seem to, again, be suggesting a different thing than just using that as something that's in your collection class library, right? Yes, absolutely. What you're saying is you're discovering those things in the domain. Yes, exactly. So help me find a, a map operation in a business domain. So, um, I mean, this is, I, I understand yeah. the generic map operation that's sort of defined in the context of lists or data structures or any sort yes. of data structure. Uh, that's a yeah, set yeah. Semantics. So, so it kind of surprised me too because if you think, as I you know, as I pointed out, it's very generic. I just briefly want to hook to your question, right? Which mm -hmm. is to look for equations. And this map, it's not just the type signature that map has; it also needs to fulfill two equations that come with functor, right? Um, and one of those, the simplest equation is one that says if you apply identity, the identity function, if you map using the identity function, you get the same thing back. Mm -hmm. So, but having said that, how do you discover, uh, so how do you discover a functor in your business domain? Well, the way to do that is, so you've, you've got a, you've got a colleague, Lars Hupel, who has a great talk, said, you know, better one more type parameter than, uh, better, better a type parameter than no parameter or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's what you need for a functor. You need a type parameter. And so what you do is you look in, you know, the type definition for your business domain entities or, or objects, and you look for something that would be a good candidate uh, for a type parameter. So that might be something like, uh, you know, if you have something, it might be something like the currency or something, you know, if you're doing a deal with finance things, um, that suggests that it could be a different thing. You know, uh, just the other day we did, uh, so I always do a domain uh, example where we model uh, animals on the Texas highway. And it's supposed to demonstrate this idea of functional programming where you have state by just always producing a new object. So I never thought about it in these terms. And then somebody said, well, you always say, look for a functor. Where's the functor there? And so the idea with these animals is they all have a weight field. So they all have a certain weight. And then there's a function or a method on these animals that feeds them. And um, so... The, uh, so what you then do is you just stick a type parameter there. You stick a generic there where the weight used to be. Um, and, um, um, and then that is immediately a candidate for, oh, okay, now I've got a type parameter. I could try implementing a map operation. Um, and that turns out to work really, really well. Um, and then you, uh, then you look for what you can do with that. It will give you something else, namely that um, where there was a concrete type before in your you know, business domain representation, it now has a type variable, so it doesn't say what it is anymore. If you have an operation that doesn't put a concrete type there, you will have learned something, namely that that operation will not mess with that particular field. And so that gives you insight again, maybe a small morsel of insight, but insight nevertheless about your domain object. So you just stick a type variable there, see where it takes you, and in surprising ways... Uh, it might uh, it might actually work out, and it often does. Yeah, so it's taken you until minute 50 to completely lose me, but you have yeah. now, so you need to catch, okay. me, catch me again. <laughs> uh, so okay. what, ah, damn, what, what is it that you're saying? You're, walk me through that animal example again. So that the, animal example. So yeah, let me, let me do the complete example. It's not mm -hmm. that complicated. So on the Texas highway, there are two kinds of animals. One type of animal is an armadillo. And each armadillo, you know, has two properties. It's either dead or alive, and it has a certain weight. Mm -hmm. And okay. there's also rattlesnakes, and rattlesnakes, each rattlesnake has a certain length and also a certain weight. Mm -hmm. Okay? So they have a field in common. Um, so, so in the sort of initial version of that domain model, that weight field would have type, you know, double or int, Mm -hmm. Or you would define a type using units or something like that, or maybe not units. You would just stick a, t you know, you would just stick an int there and say that means, you know, that many kilograms, mm -hmm. right? So now this idea of look for the functor suggests that you take out that int type and you put an a there, right? Mm -hmm. You just stick a type variable or a generic there, and then you change your type to no longer be animal, but animal, you know, angle brackets of a. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? No, that okay. makes perfect or, sense. Yes. Right? I cannot okay. parameterize my so class or my it, yeah. system it's, by... It's rather it. arbitrary, but it seems, you know, weight seems a little bit more important than the other things uh, in that domain model. So that's a, a good candidate for sticking your generic thing there. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. Then I can immediately, um, so I get immediate advantages from that. Um, somewhat surprisingly, as I said, my students took me, uh, took me there. So one of them is that, you know, a DDD expert is going to look at this and say, well, you stuck int there and I don't know what that int means. Does it mean kilogram or does it mean gram or does it mean whatever, you know, what's the unit here? And so I could then immediately stick a type there that will be more specific about the unit. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an immediate benefit that is not abstract at all. It also allows me, uh, so for example, there would always be a method that would feed the animal and that would mean it would affect the weight. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, you would get an animal. There would also be a method that would run over the animal with a car. Um, the poor thing. It's poor thing, right? So, um, so if you look at so again, because we're doing pure functions, there's a lot of things that we can learn from the type signatures of the functions that we apply. So in this case, the the you know the the feed animal function might have type animal of weight to okay. animal of weight, where weight will be a specific type. Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense, that right? Makes sense, yeah. Okay, whereas the run over method, well, it just so happens running an animal over does not affect the weight, right? Mm -hmm. So it will have a type that says animal of A, where I don't care what the A is, we'll, and you know, we'll go in and animal of A will come out. Mm -hmm. So that means looking at the type signature, I already know, just looking at the type signature, not looking at the implementation and, and with no documentation at all, that tells me that running over an animal does not affect its weight at all. Because, because you don't depend on the type parameter. Yeah, okay. because the function doesn't know anything about the type, mm -hmm. right? Whereas the feed animal, it might not, but it probably does because it says a, conc a concrete type there for the, for the weight. Moreover, of course, that feed animal function can be implemented with map, um, with the map function that we've just defined, right? And so that would be a simple example how to look for uh, where, where the value, where, where you derive a small value from finding a functor. Um, And um, so that's, that's, that's another worthwhile thing you can do. And it, again, it sometimes leads, it, it certainly leads to, to even more surprising results when it's successful um, than, than uh, finding a combinator. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Other things to discover in this regard? You, um, so once you have a functor, right, you have a type variable. So you start with looking for the type variable, as Laos says. Um, then you look for the functor, and then there's a hierarchy that goes up from there. That we um, and that culminates. Um, you always you always listen for the M word, right? The monad word. Mm -hmm. um, so for a monad, you need a functor. You start with a functor, and then uh, there's additional properties and equations that you discover, and uh, ultimately you end up with a monad. And in between, there are several other terms. So um, I don't think it makes sense to discuss them, but uh, to discuss what they are. But they are useful. So there's something called an applicative functor, or we sometimes just say applicative. There's something called an arrow, and there's various variants of that um, in between. Mm -hmm. And um, and the cool thing again about this these is is that they all support each of them support specific operations like map. So for example, a monad will have something, an operation that sort of an old style functional programming we would call bind, but these days it's often called flat map. And you find flat map in the Java standard library, um, again, in different places. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and it also has some equations that describe how flat map um, should behave. And based on these sort of simple operations that are immediately connected with these abstractions, is you can build libraries of more useful but very general abstractions. And so again, that gives you tools to think about your domain. So if you discover... Um, you know, whatever, a monad in your domain, it does happen occasionally, um, that you discover a monad, then immediately it sort of raises the question, oh, what's the flat map operation? Um, uh, or, I mean, usually you, you find the monad by finding the flat map operation, but monads have a join operation, right? And a join operation says, for example, well, the typical, flat, the, the typical join operation on lists would be if you have a list of lists of A, Mm -hmm. Right. If you have nested lists, you can just append all these lists into one. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so you take the list of lists of A, and you can get from that a simple list of A with no nesting. And but above all, it raises the question: Well, what does it mean to be a list of list of A's? Or does that concept even map to something? And when you find that domain in your domain, you know you think of well, what does it mean to be a something of something of something? So. Uh, one classic example, again, is of images, right? If you generalize images using this idea of looking for the functor, you generalize over sort of what's in the pixels. 
um, and put the type parameter there, um, where the mm -hmm. color of the individual pixels is. And you get up to Monad, and when you get up to Monad, you raise this question, oh, but now I have images of images, where there's an entire image in each pixel, if you will. Um, and uh, that, again, leads to useful ways to thinking about your domain. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and, and what's important, really, is that, um, I think what's important is that these things, I can write them down in a functional language because of their abstraction capabilities, so I can define what a functor is, at least what the operation's type signature is. And, for example, in Java, I can't write it down, so I've got to put it in a comment. Um, and, um, and having these things at my fingertips in the language really not just enhances what I can do in the, uh, when I program, but it also enhances what I can do in my brain. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, if I understand your argument correctly, what you're saying is there is this, um, there is a different domain, actually a rich domain of the, uh, of the mathematics or the, the patterns underlying functional programming, mm -hmm. functional modeling. And if you bring that knowledge to uh, a different domain and merge the two of them, you actually yeah. can see where there are interesting things that could happen. That's yeah. a, that's a, I find yeah. that very convincing. Okay. Very good. So is that the same thing as what you call denotational domain-driven design, or is that a different beast? Yeah, that's the beginning of that idea. So, so, um, the, so the general idea of denotational domain-driven design is that you look for, um, you look for a representation of the entities um, uh, in your domain, and then you look for mathematical properties of those objects. And so, so denotational domain-driven domain design really puts uh, a heavy emphasis that you create, that, that you try to come up with a representation mainly with um, the methods of mathematics. Right? And you know, given the fact that mathematics really is, is the primary tool that for many centuries humanity has had for modeling the hard facts of the world around us. And um, you don't necessarily look to it with an eye of um, uh, uh, with an eye of creating a concrete implementation. It just so happens that because functional programming languages use mathematical ideas in their structures, you can often implement those ideas anyway. So uh, coming back, for example, to that classic image example, so a good, there's a cool representation you can use for images is just a function that will translate coordinates into a color. Mm -hmm. Right, as opposed to you know an array of pixels or something like that. So that's an idea that's very mathematical. It's not geared towards you know producing pictures on the screen at all, even though you can make it uh, make it do that. And so, if you do that, if you map it into the world of sort of mathematical constructs, um, then usually we have at our disposal this rich. Um, you know, this rich set of, of things that we, can, that we can look for, this rich set of properties. And, and these include things like functor or monoid uh, or something like that. But denotational domain-driven design means you look for that representation. That representation is called a denotation, which is why, uh, why it has that name. And then you look for properties. Denotational domain-driven design, I think, adds one more element in that um, a lot of sort of, a lot of mathematical abstract structure already has a lot of properties. Um, so for, uh, to name one example is that if you have, um, um, so, so, well, to make it very concrete, right, is in, if you have the option type in Java, right? It's an option of A, mm -hmm. um, and it might have something in it or not. So that A might form a monoid. You might be able to combine two A's um, into one. And um, so if, if the A's form a monoid, then you can make option of A also into a monoid. So the structure will sort of fall out. You just say option and you immediately know what its structure is like as a monoid. And so there's a lot of structure there. Um, um, so functions have a lot of structure. You know, just compound data where you create tuples have a lot of structure. And, um, uh, and, and sort of in mathematics, we have a library of um, of the of the structure that that these various ma mathematical constructs have um, that we can immediately draw upon. So we don't even need to look sort of well. How could we make a monoid out of this thing? Um, instead, we just construct. Uh, instead, we just construct our domain denotation in such a way that the monoid will be obvious and implicit in the construction. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of gives you know it really dials the abstraction you know one level higher. Um, 
and um, and will often allow us to discover even more stuff about our domain by mapping you know these abstract uh, uh, things back into the domain. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Okay, so I think we've we've sort of reached our time limit. I'm mm -hmm. sure we could continue for about 25 hours very easily, but we won't. Instead, I would mm -hmm. like to ask you, um, are there some resources that you can point our listeners to? What's a good way to start if one wants to find out more? Yeah. Um, so, so for the if you really want to start out in functional programming, then I've got a shameless plug. If you if you sort of Google for my name, you will come to a page called Dyn Program, which is a program I've been running um, for many years. We'll add that uh, to the show notes, German, of course, for for German speakers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, And um, so, so in a former life, I actually did a lot of research on teaching how to program and, and you know, surprised that ended up being related to functional programming as well. Um, and there is a lot of um, free material. In particular, there's a book I'm currently rewriting um, and will hopefully finish in the next couple of months where you can always get the current PDF uh, for free from that website. Um, and um, there's also so the racket system that I mentioned earlier really originally was conceived as a system for teaching how to program so you can download that and it comes with special teaching languages for functional programming so that's a great way to get started um, so I think that's and it also has a lot of links I think in general after you've looked at the material there um, you're probably going to be interested in a particular um, functional language. And then really a not too bad approach is to just look at the homepages uh, for any of those languages, uh, which will typically have at least a tutorial and some more comprehensive documentation of what goes on there. And there's lots and lots of books. Mm -hmm. What about the modeling side of things? Yeah, well, <laughs> good point. So there's not, a, there's not as much there uh, as I would like. So... Um, Uh, so a lot of sort of the modeling folklore that I talked about um, in this po podcast actually comes from scientific papers. So a lot of uh, sort of the, the knowledge that we have how to write functional programs uh, were really driven by the research community and published at research conferences and research journals. And, uh, th and that unfortunately means that a lot of books on functional programming sort of focus on programming in the small and not so much sort of on really uh, real world um, domain modeling. So um, I think there's a, there's a wonderful book uh, by Scott Vlashin called uh, Domain Modeling Made Functional. I think that goes in that direction, which I like, which shows how to sort of link the concepts from domain-driven design and, uh, and, and, and do that in F-sharp. Um, but sort of for the higher level modeling stuff that I just described, there's no book yet. And so I guess I'm going to have to write one after the You'll book have one to. is done. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Thanks a lot, Mike. It was awesome talking to you. I learned a lot, yeah. which is always great. It was my pleasure too. Um, Thank you very much. And thanks to your listeners for listening. Until next time. Bye-bye. Yes. Uh, bye. <laughs>